Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. Well, not all the way across, from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are all Delighted to be back together again after a little hiatus, and we're thrilled to welcome our special guest, The Atlantic's David Frum. So, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy Thank New you. Year. Happy New Year. Same to you. The New Year dawned with violent protests at the American Embassy in Baghdad, staged by Iranian-backed militias. Uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un threatened an unwelcome Christmas present for the United States, and announced that it would unveil a new strategic weapon in the near future. The holiday season was marred by a series of anti-Semitic attacks, which we will come to. President Trump's uh, impeachment trial in the Senate still looms. The economy continues to provide more jobs than workers can fill. And wages, especially among the least skilled, are finally increasing. This presents a challenge to the Democratic presidential candidates who find themselves arguing that the economy is worse than it seems. But I'd like to begin, we can talk about a number of these issues, but I'd like to start with foreign policy. The New York Times argued uh, today that Trump's very different approaches to North Korea and Iran are both yielding poor results. Uh, that we've had the um, maximum pressure against Iran, which um, has only resulted in a plus plus withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal, which has led to a t- increasingly belligerent behavior by the mullahs. They've uh, shot down uh, a U.S. drone. Uh, they uh, attacked Saudi oil facilities, tankers, and various other kinds of provocations. Um, in uh, in the case of North Korea, um, the, uh, the, the the courtship um, now seems to be over. And uh, Nick Eberstadt, who is normally extremely um, suspicious of uh, of overtures to North Korea, has has written a piece saying that well, the good part about what Trump did there was that now that experiment of openness and friendliness toward the North Korean regime has been run, and he writes. We know conclusively the result. Hardly surprising, but arguably worth establishing. So let's start this week uh, with Damon. Uh, Damon, do you, um, do you have views on these two different approaches? And do you have a feeling that uh, there's any consistency in the Trump foreign policy? Well, there really isn't any consistency from Trump on foreign policy in really any theater. Um, I guess I would say the, the North Korea situation is pretty complicated given that we've sort of tried maximal pressure with the North Koreans for like pretty much my entire lifetime. And um, we've seen semi-deals during the Clinton administration that have then come to nothing and then various forms of saber-rattling, and then Trump's overtures that kind of went to the opposite extreme, uh, almost to a comical extent, and none of it seems to work. So I don't really know what to propose there other than to say that 
it still might be a little premature with Nick Everstadt to say that we know definitively that Trump's overtures uh, haven't worked. The fact is they're still trying to negotiate something. And uh, Kim Jong-un uh, asserting his kind of blustery warnings in the last several days could just be another uh, step in an attempt at negotiating a better position for themselves with us. So I, I can't say for sure there. The the Iraq situation. Actually, Damon, can you yeah. hold off on Iraq for a bit? Let's let's hold sure. off on that for just now. Uh, well, because I want to I want to pursue the North Korea thing for a little longer. Um, Damon says, Linda, that uh, that uh, we did maximal pressure for his entire life. Is that right? I, mean, I don't we, think so. Okay, I, I was, yeah, I was, yeah. I was going to take issue okay, with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, frankly, the only way you can get at North Korea is to use China to do so, because China keeps North Korea and the and the Kim regime in power, uh, literally in power. I mean, they provide them uh, the food and and they provide them uh, energy, as does now Russia. Um, as well. And if you are not willing to involve uh, those who support North Korea, uh, you're never going to get, you know, the maximal pressure. But the other thing is, I think that we're, we're ignoring is that what Trump did was to elevate Kim Jong-un on the world stage. Kim Jong-un was uh, sort of a joke until Trump raised him uh, to be, you know, now spoken of in the same breath as Kim Il-sung, uh, who founded uh, North Korea. And I think that uh, it has been more than just a failed policy with respect to getting North Korea to back off its uh a program of, of building missiles and, and building more uh, nuclear bombs, um, it has changed uh, the whole, you know, stage in terms of now having Kim Jong-un dealt with by the president of the United States, the president stepping foot, you know, across the line uh, at the DMZ, having these face-to-face -face, uh, negotiations with Kim, which have come to naught. Uh, and it has, as I say, it's made Kim Jong-un a real player and given him a position that his father was never given uh, on the world stage. So I think it's been a total disaster. Plus, we have backed off our commitments with South Korea. We're no longer doing our joint exercise exercises with him. And we gave that up for nothing. We got nothing uh, out of giving that up. So I think it's been a total failure. And is, we are in a more dangerous position today than we were at the beginning of the, of the Trump administration as a result. So, David, um, following up on Linda's comments, uh, I, I, by the way, remember very well the um, photo ops of Madeleine Albright, who was Bill Clinton's Secretary of State, posing uh, with uh, Kim Jong-un's father in Pyongyang. Uh, we, we've certainly made many, many diplomatic overtures over mm -hmm. the years, all of these uh, previous administrations. It wasn't just maximal pressure, in my opinion. Um, but, um, uh, but Linda said you have to get China to put pressure on North Korea. And uh, we are attempting to pressure China right now to not steal our intellectual pro property, to abide by international trade norms, to do, uh, to, to, to back off on human rights. Well, we're not really asking that, but it would be nice. But you know, what makes us think that we have any leverage over China? Yeah. 
Well, you asked at the very beginning, are there consistencies between North Korea and Iran? And I would argue it's the same policy in both places, the same psychological stance anyway. And here are the four points of commonality. The first is in both cases we see noisy but ultimately empty threats. Uh, in both cases, we see a demand to do everything in the full glare of publicity. No, nothing is happening behind the scenes. In both cases, the, uh, the United States is working with minimal alliances. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, the United States has maximal goals. So if that isn't a formula for failure in both places, I don't know what is. And all of this, and your point about China, um, really drives us home. All of this is the, the, the great shaping constraint on all of American foreign policy is the relative decline in American power in the 21st century. Um, the Chinese economy is, if not the same size as the United States, at least four-fifths the size of the United States. They are too big to bully. Um, the United States can only work, when China's on the other side, as it so often is, can only work through coalitions. The whole effort of the Trump foreign policy is to wish away uh, the fact of the past 20 years of Chinese economic growth and to try to work the world as if it were still 2001, and it's not. So unsurprisingly, he has failed and failed and failed and will fail, continue to fail as long as he keeps trying the same method that can't work. Damon? Oh, sorry, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, <clears throat> you know, as always, I think we have to be realistic. Um, and <clears throat> David's comments, I think, have set us on the right path. Uh, there are two overwhelming facts about the North Korean situation. Number one, the Chinese have never been willing to put so much pressure on North Korea as to risk destabilizing the country. Right? Mm -hmm. Their ultimate right. nightmare right. Is, yes. is that. Yes. And that is a red line for Wait, them. Can you spell that out a little more? Well, Why are they so afraid because of destabilizing? The, because they're afraid of a chaotic collapse in North Korea that would send millions and millions of North Koreans streaming across the border mm -hmm. and potentially have unfriendly forces coming all the way up to their borders. It's not mm -hmm. very complicated. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and, and, and by the way, MacArthur did just that in the Korean War. I mean, it's not completely out of the realm of imagination that the Koreans could remember that and the Chinese as well. So that's <laughs> so that's point number one. Point number two, uh, and this goes to Nick Eberstadt's we've tested the proposition point. Point number two is that it is now clear and should have been clear all along that this North Korean regime will never give up its nuclear weapons or its nuclear weapons program, period, full stop. And administrations of both political parties over decades have employed every conceivable device and strategy to change the vector of that reality. Nothing has worked and now it's too late. North Korea is a nuclear power, and in my judgment, unless something very dramatic happens in the world that I suspect nobody at this table could name as a plausible conjecture, the North Koreans will be a nuclear power. And so the question is, how can we constrain them, right? In the case of China, we just backed off the largest structural demands and agreed to a I won't say a micro deal, but certainly a modest deal uh, that does some good on both sides, but leaves the, fundament leaves the fundamentals unchanged. Uh, I could imagine a partial deal with North Korea that got them to freeze their program in, re in return for some relaxation of sanctions. Other than, but other than that, 
modest possibility. You know, David's point about maximalism in aim, in ends, and inadequacy in means, which is Walter Lippmann's definition of insolvency in foreign policy, mm. will continue to be the dominant reality. And, and by the way, I don't disagree that it's uh, would is very difficult to pressure China at this point, and particularly having <clears throat> launched a trade war and not even getting out of that trade war uh, any kind of significant agreement. I mean, you know, the intellectual property agreement. Um, it's just, you know, we're, we're not very much different than we were at the beginning of the trade war. It's a with promise. Respect. Yeah, it's a promise, right. So, so you know, so you're, you're right, David, that it, it would be very difficult at this point. But the worst thing to do was to stop uh, our joint exercises with South Korea. I mean, South, you know, and, and even though their government, um, you know, has has changed and, and they're not as hard lying on North Korea, uh, I, I think that has been a disaster. And of course, we keep hearing Trump uh, ignorantly talk about withdrawing our troops uh, from South Korea, which would be an unmitigated disaster. Well, it's the Trump this administration. Is... So whenever you say the worst thing, mm -hmm. someone That's else, a... <laughs> it's, it's an endless circle. Because right. actually, I can think of two things that oh, are at okay. least as bad and maybe even worse in, in the Korean Peninsula. Um, one is the attack on the U.S.-South Korea Free Trade Agreement, yes. uh, which President mm -hmm. Trump has been unremittingly at, yes. joined to the um, the U.S. violation of of a negotiated deal with the South Koreans at the cost of providing right. missile defense, oh, yes. um, uh, which have made the United States untrustworthy in South Korean eyes. Um, at the same time, at the same time, as the United States has stepped back and disengaged from the intensifying South Korean Japanese mm -hmm. dispute, um, that the only I, I spoke of before, but the, the 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 great fact about the rise of China means the United States can only operate successfully. When it operates in coalition, that is going to be true through the 21st century. So if you're, if you're going to deal with China, as big as China is, the U.S. plus Japan, plus South Korea, uh, plus Vietnam, plus India, that's Australia, bigger. Australia. Yeah. Um, and, and that's actually big enough that you can bring some pressure to bear, but you have to cooperate. And that means you have to have some respect mm -hmm. for the goals of other people. Um, and so the, the problem, the president's psychological deformities, um, ha happen to coincide with some of the bi negative characteristics of American foreign policy at its worst. And they're coming together at exactly the time when we cannot afford either of those faults. Right. Those are excellent points. Um, you know, there, there's one thing that you said, though, that I want to follow up on. Um, the uh, Or the bill said, actually, uh, that so North Korea is now a nuclear power. Um, and that is not going to be reversed. I think we all agree about that. But it is a nuclear power unlike any other in that it is um, willing to threaten. It is willing to, um, you know, shoot missiles, not yet with probably never, but who knows, with nuclear warheads on them in order to achieve its goals. And we are really not sure, are we, what those goals are? You know, but there's a lot of speculation. Do they, do, is it? just to remain in power? Or does Kim Jong-un fancy himself the leader of a united Korea, which has been the goal of the Kim family for generations now? And um, and therefore, it, it this is, I think, one of those problems that economists call wicked problems in that they are, you know, they are really, if you had a solution that was easy and presented itself, uh, it, it wouldn't have bedeviled us for so long. Trump's simplistic way of approaching things, of course, is to say, well, this should have been solved so long ago. You know, it's so easy for a simple-minded person. Everything that's complicated seems easy. 
But, uh, but what is the prescription? Um, what is the um, sure. bringing alliances along? Damon, do you have a thought about, uh, about you know, if you were president, the policy you would pursue vis-a-vis North Korea? Well, I, it's complicated. I mean, I share the same kind of uh, uncertainty about uh, Kim's motives and exactly what he's up to, although I do tend to be a, a little bit more inclined to credit kind of classical realist assumptions about state actors and the fact that I think it's especially while we, despite Trump's bluster, we still have quite a number of troops in the South. Uh, I really don't foresee uh, Kim staging an invasion of South Korea in order to unite the peninsula. So I, I guess I, I think some of the things that we were hearing a year or so ago uh, as a result of the thaw that Trump brought about uh, with the North uh, in discussions between the North and the South about a future of uh, eased relations, I think, is, is a positive development potentially and should be encouraged when one can. At the same time, we have to admit, as David and, and everyone really has been saying, I think quite rightly, with Trump in charge, you can't really plan on anything reasonable because he doesn't he's not a man of reason and he can't negotiate and work with partners so we're sort of like dead in the water at a certain level waiting for someone who's a little bit more capable of of acting responsibly on the world stage to come along and in the meantime i really don't know what to counsel because i whatever it would be trump wouldn't be capable of executing it (laughs) Well, I think that uh, yeah. I think that what we're counseling, and I think we all agree on this point, presupposes a different president, mm-hmm. right? So we're not giving advice to this president. We're right. giving advice, we hope, to the next president. Uh, I yeah, think- it's very difficult though to anticipate because we, you know, whoever the next president might be, we we can't anticipate of of, where of, we'll be yeah. at that moment of transition. Well, let's, right. how let's hope we're not Trump is. Right. Let's hope we're any, not any worse off. But there is one thing that we can do. I mm-hmm. can say this very quickly. We could we could make it clear, as it should have been clear all along, that the United States would construe an attack by North Korea on any of our allies in East Asia as an attack on the United States, and it would be met with the full force of American power. Uh, And now that North Korea is irreversibly a nuclear power, we have to think about deterrence. Well, that would be great, Bill, except that, you know, we've, we've got these love letter exchanges between, uh, well, Kim and, and Trump. And, and, I, you know, when I think about a future second term of Donald Trump, uh, some of it has to do with concerns about the domestic situation. A lot of it does. Mm-hmm. And our institutions, we've talked a lot about that. But foreign policy is even more, um, high stakes, obviously. And, I can't imagine uh, a second term of of this administration on the world stage. I mean, we're in ba- David is absolutely right. We are in bad shape uh, around the world. Uh, this isn't uh, we we are a declining power. I think it's fair to say that we are a declining power right now, and another four years uh, could make us uh, in a, an extraordinarily uh, precarious place. Um, 
I have a suggestion of something you would do. And uh, declining, we're a power in relative decline, obviously. But that's – when you put it that way, it it, um, it sounds m- more sinister and dark than it is. What we are actually is we're moving toward a world in which um, there is going to be for the first time since the Kaiser another power that is both militarily and economically strong. And so the challenge for American – uh, foreign policy is to get along with that power. And so you say, what do we do? I mean, I think with North Korea, as with so many problems, it's the old Donald Rumsfeld rule. If you can't solve a problem, make it bigger. And, 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 and the bigger problem is to thaw the U.S.-China relationship. That, and there is a bipartisan consensus on confronting China. That cannot work. Um, you can, to some degree, contain China by building institutions like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, but what you're, understand that what you're doing there is building a club so attractive that you want the Chinese to want to join. Not, this is not NATO 2.0. Um, this is, this is a re- making something really good. Um, what we hoped we would do back in the World uh, Trade Organization days. Um, if China were, if that relationship were working better, the North Korean problem would be a lot easier to solve. Uh, you know, you, Moan, and Bill are right that there's a limit to what China will do, but they, sometimes they do more, sometimes they do less, and right now they're doing the least. Hmm. Well, this would be an interesting topic for another discussion, but I think, let me just state for the record, I think it is an open question what China would be willing to settle for at this point. Under she, and there's no guarantee mm-hmm. that she won't be around in 2030. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you have to remember. I mean, things internally in China are not all that terrific either. I mean, we, you know, I agree that we have to at least work out on the trade issue something where China is some is a power that we can deal with. But look, they they <laughs> they're, we, they're do, repressive. They're I mean they're they're uh, putting in concentration camps, uh, minorities there. Uh, it's you know this is this is not uh, a country that's growing more democratic. It's it's growing more totalitarian. By the way, if people have not seen the documentary "One Child Nation," highly recommended. Um, it's made by a Chinese filmmaker um, who does it with her baby son on her hip. All of her interviews and um, interviews members of her own family and also local Communist Party officials who carried out this atrocity on a grand scale. It, I knew about it. I've written about the one-child policy. Even for somebody who has some passing familiarity with what happened, it is profoundly shocking, and it sheds light on the kinds of state terror and horror that the Chinese government do, you know, feels free to impose and does impose. They're doing it now to the Uyghurs. It's a very eye-opening uh, documentary. It's called One Child Nation. Um, all right. Let, let's just say a few words about about Iran. Uh, uh, David, you said it was uh, uh, that it was the the flip side of the of what we're doing in um, in North Korea. Um, what about the arguments that are going to be made? Um, doubtless, some of them, perhaps even in the Oval Office, that uh, this is a, this is a moment to say cut your losses. Uh, it's a mess over there. They all hate each other. They've been fighting for two thousand years. So. Why have any more Americans uh, involved? Um, anybody want to take that on? Well, um, the United States uh, is going to be involved in the region until um, oil becomes valueless. So, which I think, at least we won't see it, but our children will. Um, and when that—that's when peace comes to the Middle East. Is when when it's not worth fighting about the oil under the Middle East anymore. Um, it, this used to be, a, you know, before the, before the advent of oil, this was one of the most 
backward-looking, quiet, um, unimportant parts of the world. Oil made it important. When oil ends, it will cease to be important. So let's hope for that day. Um, in the meantime, whether the United, the United States imports oil from the region um, – our friends do and by the way, our enemies do. The Chinese do. So uh, do you want – uh, Donald Trump has sometimes talked about having the Chinese police the Persian Gulf instead of the United States. That's a winner of an idea. Uh, uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't the Chinese just have joint military exercises yes, with yeah. the Iranians? Yes, yes, yeah. and, and Russians. Now there's the real axis. Right. <laughs> but, but, uh, somebody, made, somebody who um, – I'm now going to not be able to give – I'm going to blank on the name. But somebody made this point that, uh, that some, there's recently been a study that since the outbreak of the Syrian civil war, the Israelis have carried out about a thousand military operations inside what is now Syria and also inside what's uh, – what is Iraq? And the world knows about almost none of them because they don't talk about them. That they what they do is they they're brushing back the Iranians and the Russians, saying here are our red lines. Um, there there are explosions. Uh, if if you cross the red lines, explosions happen. And we're not saying we did it, and we're not saying we didn't Love do the it. Passive right. voice, <laughs> <laughs> but these explosions happen, so don't do it. And in fact, they have been able to carve out some red lines. The United States, vastly more powerful than Israel, could do the same thing to say to the Iranians: Here are the lines. Uh, you carry out a murder in Berlin, really bad things happen. Uh, you carry out a murder in Baghdad, somewhat less bad things happen. Um, you know, we understand you're going to be a competitor for power in the region and we, we are going to deal deal with that because we, we're going to have – if since the United States retreated from the Iraqi commitment uh, under President Obama, we have to have more minimal goals. We have more minimal means. We have to have more minimal goals. Mm. But what about Russia's role in all of this? I mean that that's – to me, one of the scariest thing that's happened, uh, first with Obama and now uh, carried, you know, even further under under Trump, is that Russia is now a big player uh, in that region, and we've essentially ceded uh, the arena in in large parts of the Middle East to Russia. Something that when you know we had the Soviet <clears throat> Union in the U.S., you know, we were making sure that that never happened. So we didn't want the Soviets to uh, to be able to you know have uh, their foothold, even though they were. Able able to get some uh, in the region. And so so that that to me is is worrisome too. I mean, I I, I you know, yet Russia doesn't have the kind of economy, that, you know, it's not uh, it's a different kind of threat than China is, but Russia is a threat. Can I just uh, note for, uh, since we just mentioned that China and Russia did joint military operations, apparently it was a fairly trivial one, but nevertheless with Iran. Um, Anybody have some thoughts about the differing goals of China and Russia? Because they're extremely different when it comes to oil, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, for Russia, a high oil price is a good thing. That's not the case for China. China has the opposite mm -hmm. goal. So um, how about let's you and him fight? <laughs> um, the, the, uh, uh, I mean, the, Ru the Russians are there. I mean, they are there to make themselves heard to make that they're important to the extent that they're obnoxious. Um, and the United States has had some pretty quiet, has had some important successes against Russia in recent years. And one of the big, biggest ones, and this is answering your question about the region, is um, Montenegrin's Montenegro's accession to NATO mm -hmm. and before that the crackdown on corruption in Montenegro at the behest of the European Union and the defeat of the Russian attempted coup in October of uh, 2016. One of the most interesting things in our political system has been the way that the pro-Russian line on Montenegro has shown up at random as a talking point suddenly on Fox News. And you think, <laughs> like, like Fox News, I mean they're, they're – they're, they're barely aware that California is there. <laughs> um, how is it they are so fixated on uh, 
upending American success in Montenegro? And the answer is because they're at the end of a chain of transmission that originates with people who care a lot about Montenegro. And no, that was a big win. I think Damon would disagree with you, right, Damon? I think on a previous <laughs> podcast, you mentioned Montenegro in particular and, and shook your head about why we should be involving ourselves uh, there, right? Well, we don't uh, have to. We don't have to dwell on that. Sending NATO guarantees to Montenegro and North Macedonia, I see, is pretty pretty far down the list of priorities and probably uh, mildly counterproductive at this point. Frankly, okay. all right. We're, we're my not... view on my view on foreign policy is, is probably a, a quite a bit different than uh, everybody else uh, gathered around the microphones right now, uh, especially when it comes to the Middle East, where. I really wouldn't be particularly upset about letting uh, China take a bigger role in policing the region. I don't think that it's in our interest to be much more involved than we are. I also like David mentioning Israel's thousand or so uh, sorties or incursions into Iraq and Syria. Great. They should do more of it if they can't live with a potentially nuclear-armed Iran, then they should take matters into their own hands and take care of it. But we should not. We got rid of Saddam Hussein. Iraq is a majority Shia country with a with a Shia-dominated government that we have nurse-mated uh, over the last decade and a half. And uh, that means Iran is going to have significant influence in the country. And so there's something kind of uh, in the old... Uh, pedestrian sense of schizophrenic, a little bit uh, multiple personality disorder-like <laughs> about the way that we respond to things that happen over there, uh, with Trump, you know, demanding that Iran stop uh, interfering in Iraq. Well, that that would be like Russia saying that we dare not interfere with Mexico. It's right on the border. It's their neighborhood, and they are inevitably going to care a lot more about it than the American people are. So there's not a lot that we can do to change the situation, I believe. Okay, let us move now um, to a topic closer to home. Um, the uh, anti-Semitic assaults are on the rise in the United States. Uh, in California, we saw the shooting at the Poway Synagogue. Uh, back in April, uh, in October 2018, a shooter entered the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and murdered 11 people, seriously wounding six others, which was the worst, in terms of fatalities, the worst anti-Semitic attack in American history. There have been uh, a large, disturbing number, I would say, of, uh, not of um, non-fatal assaults that have been recorded across the country, and particularly in the New York area, just in just in the last few weeks, a, a 65-year-old man was punched and kicked by an attacker shouting anti-Semitic slurs in Manhattan. Three Orthodox women in Brooklyn were slapped in the face and hit on the head by an attacker who shouted, You effing Jew, your end is coming to you. Um, a, uh, a man shot up a, uh, a kosher uh, uh, supermarket in Jersey City and then engaged in a prolonged shootout uh, with police. Um and uh, apparently a, a devotee of the black Hebrews. Um, now, the Monsi attacker up in New York that happened uh, a couple of days ago, a few days ago, uh, where uh, an armed man armed with a uh, butcher knife attacked the home of a rabbi um, and uh, stabbed six people, one of whom uh, is not expected to make a recovery. He's in a coma. Um, so... 
you you have something here. I mean, there there's always a lot of alarmism, especially in the Jewish community, about anti-Semitism for understandable reasons. But sometimes I think they overdo it. Um, uh, but in this case, uh, I think there's you know something to talk about. Um, let, let's also just throw this into the mix. Um, the same t- at the same time that the attack was happening in Monsey, New York, a man with a uh, stabbing uh, a family celebrating Hanukkah. Um, an armed gunman opened fire at a church in Texas and shot one person but was immediately shot by a gun-wielding uh, either security guard or parishioner at the church. Actually, two people, I think, were two killed. Two people yeah. uh, were killed. Right, well, the one that was killed was the shooter. Yeah, mm-hmm. so so it was... But one victim, I think. Well, in any case, um, the, uh, the shooter was... Um, was was killed by gun wielding parishioners. So, um, Damon, is uh, is this an argument for even more armed resistance in the United States? Well, I wouldn't uh, say that. I'd rather <laughs> rather avoid uh, trying to engage the gun rights debate. Um, I mean, I I see all of this as a a, a different issue, a kind of. Uh, a very disturbing uh, decline in uh, people, or maybe put it this way, a rise of people who actively oppose multicultural societies, the vision of a society in which people from different religious, ethnic, uh, and other groups can get along and live in a a pluralistic society where there are differences about uh, big cultural issues and the highest good, but yet we get along and and act uh, as citizens in a common country, a common political community. And I think a lot of ways of trying to understand the rise of what's usually called uh, right-wing populism or throughout a lot of the world these days can be understood in slightly different terms as exactly that. Um, a kind of um, rise of, of uh, n- no longer wishing to get along with different people. And uh, it's it, especially when it comes to the rise of anti-Semitism that we've seen recently, it's it's extremely troubling because that always tends to come back and to be a kind of canary in the coal mine. So I personally am troubled by it. And I think all, all Americans of goodwill should be as well. So, uh, my, Bill, oh, so Bill first, okay. then you, David. Well, just very quickly, uh, I think we can do a lot more to fight anti-Semitism than we're now doing, but it's not going to work unless it is fully bipartisan, an issue outside of normal political competition. It is a disaster, I think, when people on the right deny anti-Semitism on the right, but it's no better when people on the left, I'm the Democrat at the table, so I guess it's incumbent on me to say this, it's no better when people on the left deny troubling parallel phenomena. I would add parenthetically that what I just said about anti-Semitism should go for United U.S. relations with Israel. It used not to be a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. It has become a partisan issue. No good can come from inserting our relations with Israel into the intense partisan competition that now characterizes our politics. Though arguably, um, people on 
the left and the right have contributed to that very much. Well, I'm, I, yeah. I mean, I, having made the symmetry argument in the tough case of anti-Semitism, it goes without saying yeah. that the fault is not all on one side. But I think the fact remains that we are worse off because it has become a partisan issue. Yeah. Um, I'm sitting at this table because my father's father got out of Poland in 1930, which most of his siblings did not, um, and their families did not survive, and my mine did. So I would say I've inherited pretty um, rapid, fast twitch muscles to these kinds of, of threats. That said, I think we need to keep in context that in every way we can measure, American society is becoming a more tolerant and more peaceful place, and I think one of the things that people like me with fast twitch muscles do is we look at the situation in Europe. Which, where there are very different problems caused by, um, rise of, first the rise of neo-fascist parties and second this massive migration from the Muslim world into Europe that has created a situation where Jews on the streets across many, many places cannot live in security. That's not the story in the United States, not right now anyway. So I, I think what's going on is actually three different things that we're in danger of grouping into one thing. Um, the first thing, what is happening to uh, this, the terrible situation in New York is a breakdown of policing in the city of New York. It's very much the fault of policies chosen by the current mayor. You are not seeing people being punched in the face in Houston or in Los Angeles or in Miami. This is happening in New York and it's because of changes in the way they do police work there. Undo those changes and you'll, you'll find that New York will again be like Houston and Los Angeles and Miami, a place where – People, including Jews, can walk down the street without being punched in the face. I think we have a problem, um, a second problem of, uh, as, as Damon said, the rise of these small numbers but of ever more violent terroristic groups, white nationalist groups. Jews are one of their targets, not the only one. Um, they, they shot up a mosque in, in, in um, uh, New Zealand and killed you know, what, 55 people. El um, Paso. El Paso. So you have you have networked um, in, lone actors, but they're networked through uh, the internet. They're kind of like, think of them as a, you know, a white ISIS. Um, and that's a sec separate thing, different from the breakdown of policing in New York. Um, and the third thing that is happening is um, a rising degree of intensity in the debate about the relationship between the United States and Israel, um, which, and, and, and there, there's a lot of fault to go around. Um, uh, what's happening on, on the American left toward Israel is, I think, um, disturbing and sometimes abhorrent. It's also true that Israel is monkeying around in American politics oh, very in, so. in a way that Israel should not do. And I, I mean, I don't know where to begin this. Maybe Netanyahu's speech to the joint session of Congress in 2012 again, over the objection of an American president. That should never have happened. Mm -hmm. um, and to, to make a partisan point on the eve of an American presidential election, uh, unsurprising the Democrats – Dislike that. Mm -hmm. um, who wouldn't? Um, so, uh, so I would say let's think about we have to, we have a police response to this network terrorist group that attacks Jews and others. We need a local police response to what's going on in New York, um, and then um, we need a relegitimation of Israel that is going to require some better behavior on the part of some people in Israel. Can I just interject here before we get off on on Israel that it, you know one of the attacks that you talked about in New York, a majority of those were committed by people of color against um, Jews. Uh, they were not white supremacists. Yes, the the deadly attacks that you're talking about have been white supremacists. Some of the attacks in other places have been. But in New York City, um, it has been black and I think at least in one occasion a Latino uh, attackers who have been responsible for the uh, attacks on Jews. And I think it goes back to what Bill was saying. It, it, and But it's not just the left's hostility towards Israel. 
um, there are somewhat poisonous relationships in some neighborhoods between uh, the Jewish community and the black community. And, and um, you know, I've talked about this for many, many years, going back to the 60s. Um, and, you know, people don't want to talk about it. People don't want to discuss uh, those problems because Jews and, and blacks were allies in the civil rights movement. But um, there is anti-Semitism in the black community. I have witnessed it with my own eyes and my own ears uh, over the years. And uh, I don't think we should ignore it. Um, you know, I, I will tell you that when I read, I think it was in the Times, it might have been a different newspaper, but when I was first reading about the Monsi attack, um, there are two things to be said about the Monsi attack. The first is that... Uh, <laughs> This, it's, it's probably likely that this um, this killer was mentally ill because he himself is African American and he was a fan of the Nazis. So that's right. Uh, <laughs> right. No, an he's, internal he contradiction is, right, right there. Okay, but nevertheless, um, I, I will tell you that um, as a a reader between the lines, I knew because the, the 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 first account that I saw did not say the race of the attacker, but I knew that the attacker had to be non-white because. The second and third paragraphs were all about tensions within the communities, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if it had been a white attacker, it, that would not have been the, the way the story unfolded. It would have been about the white extremism white and the alt-right alt and everything else. Um, so, yes. Just once again, very, once again, very quickly. I think there's a shade of disagreement between me and David on the New York policing argument. Uh, I have a hard time explaining the catastrophe in Pittsburgh on that basis or the shootings, the shootings in other states. Uh, I think no, no, I said those are two separate things and, and yeah. they mustn't be conflated. That what is happening with this kind of network world of um, white nationalist violence with guns yeah. should not be joined uh, to uh, – uh, the, the breakdown of law and order in the city of New York that is not happening in other similar cities across the United States. Well, fair enough, but I do uh, I do think, and I'm I'm someone who's leaned against as a Jew. I've leaned against anti-Semitic alarmism mm -hmm. for my entire mm. adult life. Me too. Mm -hmm. I am more worried than I have been in quite a while, mm -hmm. uh, just because uh, part of the general breakdown of norms of restraint is that what used to be unsayable and therefore marginalized into dark corners of our society has now become publicly sayable and therefore it enjoys a degree of legitimation that it did not previously enjoy. Uh, and I have some views as to why this has happened, uh, but perhaps we can discuss them on another occasion. But uh, I think it's a problem. Yeah, I, I've always been a, this is part of why I became a conservative, is that I've always believed in the importance of repression. Um, that is, a conservative view of the world assumes that human beings have a lot of impulses and desires that are not so benevolent, and that part of the job of a civilized society is to keep them very well repressed. This seems an appropriate <laughs> moment to note with sorrow the passing of Gertrude Himmelfarb. Yes, I was going to mention her at exactly the end. exactly that yes, argument yes, in yes. some very controversial but pro provocative, thought-provoking yes. thought books. Yes, I, I was going to get – I will get to her. All right. Well, um, 
Uh, we've opened a lot of topics that I'm sure we will have occasion to come back to. But now I'd like to move to um, another subject as the uh, decade drew to a close. We saw a lot of think pieces um, that were debating um, how how things are in the world. Um, and some have argued that despite the hysterical tone of our public discourse, or at least sometimes hysterical tone, that things are better than ever. And of course, it's undeniable that hundreds of millions of people who lived in severe poverty just 25 years ago are now middle class, which is an astounding accomplishment. It's happened mostly in Asia, but lifespans and health and wealth are improving pretty much throughout the world. Um, Nevertheless, um, catastrophism abounds. Um, on the left, there is dread of irreversible and disastrous climate change, among other things, and they also fear we are losing our democracy to racist populace. And on the right, there is an equally intense conviction that the U.S. is under siege from waves of criminal immigrants and uh, authoritarian leftists. Um, and, of course, the media environment that we all live in now rewards outrage and anger with clicks, and it provides very poor returns for moderation and balance. So um, around this table, I imagine that we can agree that uh, the fears of both the left and the right are exaggerated and often even disingenuous. But um, what I want to ask all of you is, um, what are the things we should truly be worried about? And they can be some, obviously, whatever you want. Some of the things that I mentioned, perhaps you agree, are uh, serious like climate. So, um, David, why don't you start us off? Well, I, I take the climate problem very seriously. Um, we, we got a little holiday from it um, that uh, the world climate warmed very rapidly in the 1990s and then for reasons that are – at least I don't understand – paused between about 1998 and 2012. Um, and then the warming after 2012 went into high gear again. And uh, we've had a string of very, very hot years um, and accelerating um, – accelerating damage. What worries me most about this, um, the world has gone through many climate episodes before, not man-made. And the one that is best recorded is the um, uh, Little Ice Age between about 1590 and 1710. And the real story of that from my point of view, and again, this is not a man-made event, is how suddenly the climate can change. So if you were born in 1590, you saw the world becoming gradually cooler and wetter between about 1590 and 1620, but nothing happened that was so out of the way. Then suddenly between 1620 and 1630, um, rivers are freezing, birds are, are dying in the trees, the great canal between – Crop failures. Crop failure. Yeah. And, and it explode, the world explodes into a spasm of violence. Thirty Years' War, English Civil War, um, the collapse of the uh, the Ming Dynasty in China, spasm of violence not seen again until 1914-45. Um, now we're doing it to ourselves, and I think which, by the way, of course, had nothing to do with climate. Um, 1914. Which had nothing to do with right. climate. But now, now we are doing these things to ourselves, and. Uh, what we should, we should be mindful of the possibilities of discontinuity, that the gradual change that we saw between 1998 and 2012, which is now accelerating, can lead to maybe it'll pause again, but maybe things can go quite fast. Mm-hmm. What do you say, Bill? Well, I agree completely with that. And my, my worst fear for the next decade or two with regard to climate change is that it will provoke mass migrations of desperate people. Uh, we've already seen some of that. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. <clears throat> and this has already destabilized European politics. Mm-hmm. And it's possible that we haven't seen the worst of it by far. 
So that's that's one important worry that's on my mind as I look forward to the next decade. Another one is the as yet unchecked decline of democracy in the world, which I think poses some very serious risks. Uh, the rise of authoritarianism is is obvious. I think most troubling of all is the rise and relegitimation of ethno-nationalism, which is a potential bomb at the heart of societies that are not ethnically pure, as most are not. Uh, and I think we can we can add to that uh, the uh, the foreign policy challenges that we uh, that we discussed in the first part of this program. So you put together put together climate change pressure on democracies throughout the West and beyond the rest, uh, the Russian threat to Europe and the Chinese threat to the rest of the globe and to Europe, by the way. We could, we could have an interesting discussion about that. And you have the ingredients of a decade to come that where the problems will be more prominent than the progress. Hmm. Linda? Well, I'll add to your worries, um, and, and it follows along some of what both uh, David and, and Bill said, and that is I am concerned that we spend a whole lot of time thinking about Asia, thinking about Africa, thinking about Europe, uh, thinking about the Middle East, and very little time as a country focused on Latin America. And they are our neighbors, and what happens in Latin America ultimately has an effect on us. And you talked about climate change. Well, one of the things that's happening in Central America is that subsistence farmers are sort of being forced off their farms. They can't make a living anymore. And where can they go? They go north. Um, but there are also countries, I mean, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, uh, these are uh, these are countries that are, in, in some instances, almost failed states. There's, you know, civil disorder uh, taking place. The governments are not truly in control of their own territory. That is true even in Mexico, or parts of Mexico. Mexican crime is on the rise. Uh, this is our nearest neighbor. Uh, in South America, Venezuela is a humanitarian disaster. Uh, Chile is falling into uh, a disaster. Uh, there have been riots that, that are barely even touching. You don't even read about it in the front pages of the New York Times or the, or the Washington Post. And the neglect of Latin America and the, the neglect of Latin American policy by the United States is dangerous. It is dangerous to our well-being. And, you know, uh, David and I disagree on, on some immigration issues, but I think both of us could agree that what happens in Latin America and whether or not those countries are capable of providing uh, a livelihood to their people is what drives people to leave and come here. Uh, and so uh, I, I really think that one of the things that we're going to have to deal with in the 21st century as a country, and it's something we have never dealt with well in this country, um, is uh, our neighbors to the south. Damon. Uh, I agree with much of what everyone else has said. I mean, I would just uh, reemphasize a couple of points. One would be, um, I agree with both, uh, with, I think, I guess it was mainly David who made the point about, uh, refugee flows, uh, coming from climate change and the dangers that that can, can cause. Uh, and I really do worry about that quite a lot. Um, the point about 
uh, Europe's uh, kind of lurch to the populist right uh, over the last decade uh, it was tied to, uh, uh, you know, about a million immigrants coming from or refugees coming from the Syrian conflict and from Libya across the Mediterranean. And that was just a tiny trickle compared to what we could see if temperatures really spike across the Middle East and the Sahara. It, it really could be incredibly destabilizing to have that number of people on the move and showing up at the doorstep of other countries who don't want them there. And the kind of uh, defensive nationalism that that could spark. And that's that's related to the second point or point that I made earlier, and we've all touched on a few times in this broadcast, is the what I called uh, the decline of the ideal of the multicultural society, which is under assault from uh, from the angle I just mentioned, uh, from kind of immigration and refugees, but also because of domestic changes uh, and other cultural uh, uh, changes over time that are, are complicated and dangerous and very worrying. So I guess all of us are a little bit uh, circumspect. Too bad um, Steven Pinker isn't here. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, I, I have a... Slightly, I, would, I have a slightly different view on the climate change problem, but I'm I'm going to save that for another time because I think it's a really important and huge subject, and perhaps we should devote a whole podcast to it someday. We'll have somebody, maybe a couple scientists, in and and really get into it. But um, uh, but but I for for my worry, I, I I'm reminded of the quip, very famous quip by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who said, "You may be entitled to your own opinion, but you're." not entitled to your own facts. And of course, in our environment, in our information consuming environment, we now are. We are all choosing our facts rather than having to grapple with the facts as, as best we can. And uh, this has led to a level of unreasonableness, which is always a part of human nature, but I think which is, um, which is fed very much by the internet in information stream. And uh, it, it encourages, um, encourage, of course, extremism and uh, discourages self-control and all those nice bourgeois virtues that um, conduce to a happy civil society. So I'm quite worried about our information flow as we head into this no. next decade. You want some really bad news? <laughs> I've been I've done a deep dive into deep fake technology. Oh yeah. And the technology community believes that by next summer with commercially available software, uh, campaigns at home and bad actors around the world are going to be able to produce videos representing people saying what mm -hmm. they did not say and doing what they did not know undetectably. Undetectable. Undetectable. Well, we'll Just in time for that. the election. Just in yeah, time yes, for the, time election. the election. Yo, my favorite Marx Brothers movie is Duck Soup. Yeah. And Chico asks the most pertinent question uh, at that point, namely, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Yeah. The right answer to that question used to be your own eyes. Yeah. But what if you can no longer believe your own eyes? Yeah, that then is... Then what do we do? Yeah. I, I do. I do think... 
think, though, I mean, it is very, very scary. And especially in the short term, it's yes. very scary. I do believe <clears throat> that as with every weapon that's ever been devised in human history, there's always a counter weapon that gets invented to push back. So, But the um, offense usually has the, uh, the, the advantage, uh, advantage for, a little for, while. for a little while. That is true. And a lot of damage can... That, that is exactly right. It's like the stirrup on a horse, right? It allowed the hordes to come down from... From Asia. All right. Well, um, let us move now. <laughs> let us move now to uh, our final segment, which is uh, things we'd like to draw attention to. So, Linda, we'll start with you. Well, I will uh, start with an a an opinion piece that was, in fact, uh, the topic of of my predictions or worries, and that was a piece uh, in the Wall Street Journal by. Axel Kaiser, Latin America's oasis descends into chaos. It's all about what's happening in Chile. And since you won't read it on the front pages of the newspapers, you can read it on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. Okay. Excellent. Bill. Um, since we last convened, I've spent most of my time taking care of my grandsons. And so I have – I'm going to take a pass on this one. Okay. <laughs> That's a, that must have cheered you up though. Uh, well, I will tell you this. You know, whenever, whenever someone says about climate change, well, what are we worrying about? That's not going to happen until the, the yeah. 22nd century. I say to myself, wait a minute. I'm taking care of kids yeah. who are going to be alive. Be alive then. Uh, it is a real connection with the farther future. Absolutely. David? Uh, so I want to draw attention to things that maybe make, should make us feel a little bit more optimistic. Oh, thank God. Um, to, to, <laughs> 2018 saw the highest voter turnout in any non-presidential year since before the uh, First World War. Um, let me draw attention to something that didn't happen. Through the Trump years, with all the intensity of emotion, there were no civil commotions at all. Um, there were a couple of large street demonstrations, notably the Women's March on Washington 2017, and they were amazingly orderly. I don't think anyone was even arrested for littering at the 2017 uh, Women's March. Um, Americans That's because they were women, David. <laughs> <laughs> right. It would have been a men's march. <laughs> I think there are some teenagers there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but what, what we have seen is uh, – and uh, ev all of us who take, take part in the media, I mean we all feel it. The rise in reader engagement and in, in interest, um, this, the efflorescence of the things like this podcast that we're doing today, and that we have seen um, not just a level of re-engagement of Americans in their public life, but doing so in responsible, peaceful, orderly ways with confidence in the political process. Um, I, I hope that that will be rewarded and that we um, and that votes lead to results that can convince people that democracy works. But so far, Americans really do seem to believe it. And that is an enormously encouraging sign. Damon? Well, uh, someone mentioned earlier that uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb died this week. Uh, this was, uh, of course, um, a fabulously prolific and very uh, wise uh, scholar, uh, uh, historian, intellectual historian specifically, who also happened to be uh, the wife of Irving Kristol and uh, mother to um, Bill Kristol. And there have been a lot of very nice tributes to her this week, but uh, my favorite by far uh, was by uh, Yuval Levin, who wrote a really 
such a fabulous tribute in uh, National Review. It was one of those times where as a writer, I thought to myself, you really must have written this prior. To <laughs> I thought this the same thing. posted it because <laughs> there's no way you just did this in the last three hours. Yes. It's really a tour de force. So yes. For any listeners who are interested in what all the chit-chat about her and her work has been about, I think Levin's uh, essay is really the best entry point and really an impressive piece of work. So a tribute to her. Um, I, I now consider myself some somewhat of a weird centrist, but uh, part of my heart still beats uh, on the conservative side of things, and uh, uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb is one of the best. So. If there were time, I'd tell my favorite story. Uh, there is time. So so I'm going to do mine, and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to you for the story. So I, uh, too, wanted to pay tribute to Gertrude Himmelfarb, who um, really was an intellectual giant. Um, and uh, I'm uh, very proud to say a, a personal friend of mine, um, a huge influence. Um, her, she, she really was the consummate intellectual. She knew everything. <laughs> and, uh, and she, um, was in addition to being super smart, which is very common, um, she was wise, which is very uncommon. And, um, and, and she had, uh, this, this capacity to, to peel away layers of intellectual cant when she saw it. Uh, but also, she was always fair-minded. She was always open, and uh, she lived a beautiful long life. Lived to be ninety-seven. Surround. She died surrounded by her children and grandchildren, and um, she belongs in the pantheon. And uh, she's she was one of the greats. All right, your story. <laughs> Maybe it's my favorite story about her because it involved me. Okay, not, of course. Not, not in a terribly flattering way for me, although I'm standing my ground to this day. Uh, there was a public event not long after the publication of Saul Bellow's Ravelstein novel, mm -hmm. Ravelstein, which mm -hmm. was a thinly disguised depiction of his relationship with Alan Bloom, mm -hmm. you know, whom I'd known as a student for many, many years. Uh, and... You know, she she had some nice things to say about the book, and then there were plaudits all around the room. It lasted for some time, and finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And I stood up and denounced the book as a betrayal of a friendship mm -hmm. and an invasion of a man's carefully guarded privacy. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me for a minute, and then she responded wryly. Bill, you're more of a moralist than I am. <laughs> nice. Okay, I can't resist telling one other story, which I loved. She once uh, talked about a um, graduate student, PhD candidate, who was sitting for her oral exams and being questioned, of course, by a panel of professors. And one of them said, um, now, you've, of course, read, and she peeled off the name of a, an author, and uh, the candidate responded, well, not personally. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you all for uh, joining us. Again, Happy New Year to everyone. And uh, we will reconvene very soon. <laughs>